It takes an endless amount of history to make even a little tradition. My next guest is keeping her tradition alive through her cooking. Hello and welcome to my podcast, Unapologetically KK. My guest today is Jean Winter, who is a chef and founder of Jean's Private Kitchen. Hello, Jean, and welcome to Unapologetically KK. Hi, good morning. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you very much. We're happy to have you here because who doesn't want to know a chef? And you are a private chef for VIP clients. You host extremely high-end private events uh, in in Dubai as well as internationally, uh, in the UAE actually. And you are also a food consultant to the Singapore Embassy and Consulate in the UAE. That's right. And I host um, all the ambassadorial events uh, pretty much in Abu Dhabi and Dubai and guests from the whole of UAE come. Wow. Tell us some of your signature dishes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't have a signature dish because I am known for my cuisine, uh, which is called the Peranakan cuisine. It's an ethnic cuisine that is pretty much um, dying in this uh, day and age. So this cuisine is very much um, a lost tradition Mm -hmm. in present day because our culture is being uh, watered down in that sense because there are a lot of intermarriages. So the Pranakan cuisine is so unique um, and that is how I pretty much got my niche as a VIP uh, chef because I get flown over to cook this cuisine because there's not many of us left. Um, in the world that does this. Pranaka, you say? Puranakan. Puranakan. And where is this from? So traditionally, it is from Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. but uh, Malaysia, Singapore, and only some parts of Thailand. So during the colonial times, the Chinese from China that came down to work then intermarried with the local Malay women. Right. And the offsprings are called the Pranakans. But during the colonial uh, period, they realized that there's this small group of locals that were not accepted by the Chinese nor the Malays because they were seen as neither here nor there. So Mixed. Mixed. Yes. And so in, in the local terms... They are called the Chinagas, which translated, it literally means neither here nor there. Wow. Yeah. And so the Brits were very clever. They basically took this group and said, okay, we are going to take this group and furnish them with um, education. Right. The English. Uh huh. And then get them to work for us under the colonial rule. So from then on, the Peranakans then became the most educated and the richest um, echelons of society and it remains so today. Wow. And they are based in Malaysia, Singapore Um, and you're saying? The majority of us are in Singapore, Malaysia and parts of Indonesia. And you are from that group? And I'm from that group. Oh, wow. This is a bit of history. It is. Very intriguing. (laughs) Very, very intriguing. Um, So tell us about what is is part of this cuisine. It is a very specific mix of very different spices used. Right. Um, it's not Malay, it's not Chinese, but it has a special blend of its own. Yeah. So spicy, not as in Malay spice or Indian spice. Right. It's our own blend of spice, but very spicy. And are there restaurants that serve this food internationally? Very badly, yes. Very badly. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I'm pretty much Singapore's food ambassador. 
outside of Singapore. Right. So um, that's why I host a lot of ambassadorial dinners. Right. Um, and pretty much the idea of how I started this business was to share that Singaporean food doesn't taste like what many, many um, countries, especially in Europe, say is Singaporean food. Right. So when there is, for example, even in Dubai, mm-hmm. you go to, oh dear, like noodle house. <laughs> and then okay. you order Singapore laksa. Uh-huh. Oh my gosh, it doesn't taste like that. It's not supposed to taste like that. Wow. Um, if you order Singapore noodle, there's no such dish in Singapore. So it drives me absolutely mental when I see um, restaurants worldwide serving dishes that are not Singaporean because that's giving us a bad name. We don't have dishes like this. Wow. Okay. Well, so you are a self-taught chef and uh, you got into this because obviously you have these recipes and you were you have this passion for, for bringing Singapore food uh, to the world. So what got you started on this journey? I started because I've always loved um, hosting dinners. So part of our Peranakan culture mm-hmm. is hosting big dinners. Right. We love cooking. We love eating. So um, growing up, I was, among all my cousins, I was the only one always in the kitchen. Right. With grandma, with my mom. So a lot of the recipes were handed down. Mm-hmm. Um, and when my husband got posted out stationed, so our first posting was Italy. Right. I was doing nothing. So during that time, I was hosting a lot of his dinners for his clients. And we love parties. So we threw a lot of dinners um, in Italy while my kids were growing up. Mm-hmm. So at that time, cooking for 20, 30 people was normal for me. Wow. And that was... If, that's pretty much the background of... But what really got me started was when we moved to Geneva. Right. We had a few friends who were working in the UN, WHO, WTO. We've got friends who are ambassadors. We've got friends who are diplomats. Right. Um, I was still hosting parties at that time mm-hmm. in my house, cooking my pranakan food. Right. And one day, uh, Jeff, basically at that time, he was uh, the CEO of Gabby. And he said, I'm going to host my birthday dinner. Uh Uh, Why don't you do that as a gift for me? Um, And I did. And I remembered somehow from there, uh, he recommended me to another friend, an American diplomat from UN. And they said, Jean, why don't uh, you host our, you cook for our party. Mm -hmm. And I remembered the biggest number was about 50 to 70. Then it started. I went, hey, wait a minute. That's a proper business. Yeah. So Jean's Private Kitchen came about in Geneva because I started out pretty much as a very secret underground restaurant. Right. Per se. Not a restaurant, but private kitchen because it was in my home. Right. And because we still own that home uh-huh. and it was, well, it's a big villa. So I was able to host private dinners. It started with four people. So people would come to your house. Yes. You wouldn't go and as cook. Well, as well. Okay, so both. I, yeah. But so then, you opened up your home yes. to, to host these, these to private events. To uh, shock and dismay. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> So when it started, I, w- I told him, oh, it's just four, it's just four, you know, let me do a chef's table, it'll be fun. Yeah. Because my guess, it started out actually 
um, as a takeaway service because I was so bored and the food was so bad <laughs> in Geneva. And well, boredom always creates oh, opportunity. And I tell you, and then he used, I used to have um, cars, diplomatic cars driving into my driveway, picking up wow. 10, 10 euro meals. So I basically served um, 10 euro packet foods. Right. So rice, a, a meat, a dish, an egg. Right. For 10 euros. That's it. Uh-huh. And when people used to ask jeans, what's the menu of the day? I said, don't ask. It depends on what I find in the market. Right. Yeah. So if you want, come. If you don't, don't. And yeah. just tell me how many packets and I'll cook more than what I'm cooking for my dinner. Right. And that was how it started. Then I started having a huge clientele from the UN only. Uh-huh. And um, that was where my diplomatic circle started growing. Right. So these people then started saying, you have a nice house. Why don't you start hosting dinners? I said... Well, 50 to 70 people is <laughs> a lot. It's just like a, a private kind of banquet. Yeah, yeah. But sit-down dinners, I mean, sit-down sit dinners, um, I hosted 30. So my dining room could sit 30. Wow. And then um, the standing mixed dinners, yeah. like cocktails, then they could go into my garden because we had a big garden as well. Right. And this is all happening in Geneva? Yes. So right. that was that was then. Uh, that was how it started, Jean's Private Kitchen. So it started from a handful of friends, seven, actually. I sent an email out to seven friends. I said, I'm bored. I'm going to do takeaway meals and then from takeaways they started asking me to do catering then from catering they said why don't you host dinners in your home that was when my husband was like what you're inviting people into a house now <laughs> and then from four people it started going to six and within 18 months i had a guest list of uh, 200 300 and by the time we left uh, geneva five years later my guest list of 700 private guests Right. And it got so crazy that uh, people would fly in from UK on their private jets, have dinner in Geneva and then fly back out and then place their next booking for a few months later. That is amazing. I mean, it's insane because, you know, that's organic growth. That is just, you know, not having any expectations, saying I oh, want yeah. to cook for my love of cooking and people just loving what you're making and yeah. and there's you know it's it that's amazing because there are a lot of restaurants now uh, that you hear of that that don't have a menu that because they want to uh, support organic farming and be sustainable they they say we're going to go to the market and we're going to see what we find there and we're going to cook you know whatever is is available to us the best bit was being able to go to the markets, the farmers markets in France, because you can't get any fresher than that. Right. And you can't tell what you're going to get that day. So yes. I never had a menu. In fact, that was how I started my Facebook page. And so to ask me how I got to 82, 80 over thousand followers, I don't know. Because when it started, it mm -hmm. was literally to inform my guests um, because they were bugging me for a menu. I was like, I don't have a menu. So I said, okay, I'll tell you what. I'll start posting pictures of what I'm cooking. I'll, yeah. I'll label them. Yeah. And if you happen to like the look of that dish, leave me a note Yes. to say, okay, I want this for the catering. So yes. it started like that. It was it was not It was not intentional. No, no, it was no, not no, no, no. it was not a marketing strategy. No, I have it was no not zero marketing, even till today. Right. Today the only people that know what I do, it's pretty much by word of mouth. 
So, for example, the footballer crowd. Um, so I have two two very um, clear categories. I have my footballer friends, mm-hmm. and then I have the politicians. Right. And basically, as kept in that crowd because it's by word of mouth. I don't. I don't pay a cent for marketing. I'm very cheap that way. That <laughs> is amazing, and and uh, everyone wishes that they had that kind of a business model because you know, marketing is is uh, trying to get into the consumer's head about what they want your company to be and what they expect from you, and you're just going out there and saying, "This is what I do. If you like it, come. If you don't, come." Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You don't have to think about it because you have created an audience, or you have created a, a, a list of customers who have appreciated your food over time and then built that, you know, organically one customer at a time who has enjoyed the experience of of eating your food. And um, not having to curate is luxury. It's a freedom that is not available to a lot of businesses. So I think you should be absolutely happy with with that situation. Which brings me to my next question uh, from your organic growth uh, of your business to organic food. Yeah. Tell us something about organic food because there is so much information that's available out there that uh, it's confusing. Organic food is more expensive than than regular food. Um, So what is it that we should be looking out for? And what is the reason why we should be eating organic food? I'll give you my take on this whole organic food thing. Right. Very simply. I think that um, it's a shame that we have to pay double or sometimes triple the price for what our forefathers grew in the backyards. So that's that's everything in a nutshell. Yes. Uh, I think that it's ridiculous that we have to somehow... What is natural has become unnatural and what's unnatural has become natural. True. And um, I think it makes me very angry every time I have to pay three times more Mm -hmm. uh, for what my parents grew up with as the cheapest real and natural product you can get. Yeah, and this is a problem that's facing our generation more than the ones that have come before us our grandparents and our parents didn't have to think about gmo and chemicals and whether this is organic or not organic for them food was organic this is also exactly another aspect of my business i tell my customers no Mm -hmm. that i cook only with natural products so when i say natural it means i do not open any tin cans Right. I do not use anything preserved, well, other than dried tamarind seeds. Um, I don't use anything from a packet. So if I need, for example, if I need sugar, I will be using natural raw honey mm-hmm. as opposed to processed sugar. So I always tell my customers, because I give a lot of advice, food advice to my VIP clients, like the footballers, the, mm-hmm. the wives. I mean, my last call was from the shaker. Mm-hmm. My advice is very, very simplistic because for me, I think a lot of people make the simple complex. Right. So as a rule of thumb, even I tell my kids, just eat what you recognize. So for example, <laughs> if you don't recognize what's on your plate, yes, don't eat it. 
Yes. Because it's all mashed together yeah. that it's lost color, it's yes. lost flavor, it's lost shape. So this is what I have uh, information I have with regards to labeling that only labels that state 100% organic are guaranteed GMO free. 90% of the time. <laughs> okay, so you're saying that, but I believe what I've been reading, again, please feel free to 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 tell us about what the reality is uh, from your perspective. Uh, but what I have been reading online is in order for companies to, to be able to have that stamp on their food, uh, there is a lot of regulation that they need to go to. There are inspectors that go to those farms and, and you know, test those products to make sure that they are 100% guaranteed organic. That's the only time you get that stamp. Of course, there could be things that could happen in between, but they are constantly monitored. Yes. So for farms, yes. A lot of the times mm -hmm. in the farms, mm -hmm. they have to be very strict. Right. Because that's when they are subjected to a lot of um, health and safety regulations. Mm -hmm. And if they have put in so much effort and... Um, I would say investment into the farm. Yeah, they wouldn't risk having it closed down because of, you know, non-compliance. Non-compliance. The farms, most of the time, they are very, very, very compliant. So, what are the uh, things that you look at when you are buying organic food? What, how do you make the decision whether this is right or this is wrong, and what you want to pick up and what it looks like it's just a label? So, again, for me, for example, if my clients are willing to pay that much more for organic food, mm -hmm. then you go basically to the same suppliers that you trust. And anyway, in Dubai, you don't have many. Right. So you go to very specific farms yeah. or you go to very specific markets like the right market or mm -hmm. the organic cafe and, you know, you find your suppliers and you stick with them. Right. Green Day, you have, for example, when they say organic breads, I would rather bake my own organic bread. You're if, a chef. Um, remember, <laughs> I'm self-taught and it's very easy to Google recipes nowadays, right. even for, I, I'm telling a lot of my clients. So some clients, um, I tell them, don't waste money on me because I'm not the cheapest person around. Right. Um, Google certain recipes and if you want to fine-tune it, it's not right, that's when you call me in. But don't call me in for, you know, to everything. for everything because I know that my clients can pay me. Yes. But I'm not the sort of person that would take your money if I don't have to. Yeah. So I guess that's why my clients love me. I remembered someone drove um, two hours just to pick up some chicken wings for me because their kids missed my chicken wings. Wow. So I can easily say, give me the money because, <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, that's like working but not working. Yes. But it's ridiculous for me because, again, my business model is very different. A lot of people work for profit. Mm-hmm. I work so that I can give back to society because I guess I'm in a very lucky place where my I don't have to work, but right. I choose to work. Right. Um, because it keeps my mind active, and the more money I earn, yeah, the more people I can help. But so, uh, being a chef and and making uh, amazingly you know nutritious and and good well tasting dishes is an art. And uh, one thing that I've learned about uh, anything that is creative is that if you do not use your creativity, it turns into some kind of a poison within you because it actually starts to feel like 
you are suppressing a certain part of yourself. And so, you know, creating and going out there and utilizing a skill that you have, which food makes people happy. I mean, why would you not, you know, want to make people happy? It's, (laughs) it's, it's such a simple thing, especially if you're good at it. And, and, you know, you, you have a skill that people appreciate. I think it's amazing to, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the other thing that I love about your story is also the fact that you have started it and you have just allowed it to to go where it it's taken you you know a lot of us in business kind of before we start we we have to have a three-year plan and a five-year plan and we have to hit this milestone and we have to you know we we define our success based on these these milestones that the industry is telling us um are milestones of success and if we don't reach them we it, it creates a lot of i would say setbacks to the business so for you, you've obviously skipped all of those steps and yeah, kind of let it grow wherever, you know, it's it's grown. And and how has this being self-taught served you? So because I run such a bespoke business, mm-hmm. um, it's a plus and minus in um, many ways. So for example, um, because I'm in a very male-dominated industry, mm-hmm. uh, it's challenging for one because number one, they know that I'm self-taught. It's like, how did she get this kind of guests um, right. and get this business model without even being trained? Mm-hmm. And people don't understand. Um, well, neither did I in the beginning. But, you know, when I built it up, I basically said, okay, I know what I enjoy, mm-hmm. what I appreciate in, an, in a nice restaurant. Right. I'll just replicate it, but with my own flavor. Mm-hmm. The challenge is not having that certification behind me uh, in the beginning. And pretty much because I guess um, over the years, I've built a reputation for myself. Mm-hmm. People don't question anymore because my clientele is so niche. Mm-hmm. I'm not in the general, the big bigger market. However, I, I still felt, neg- you know, there's this nigging. Did it hold you back in any way? It never held me back. But I've always wanted to shut the non-believers up that, hey, I'm not that bad, you know, because... So there was some pressure, even it wasn't kind of visible to you. At some level, you felt the pressure of not having a degree to show... Yeah, because... How good you are. Yeah, um, being very honest, right? For example, when people talk about big events and, you know, celebrity chefs and Mm -hmm. how they got to where they are... Yeah. I was pretty much one of those that that uh, people didn't understand because I literally skipped, like you said, skipped a lot of the steps. You're an anomaly. Yeah, exception the to the rule. Yeah. Absolutely. Because a lot of the chefs rise up pretty much from scratch. So they started as boys in the kitchen, chopping vegetables, having to wash the dishes. And, you know, they basically climbed up the ladder through years and years and years of hard work and experience. I basically entered the industry. Skipped the line. And yeah. Yeah, I can understand what that means because, I mean, if somebody just skips the line when you're just, you know, waiting in a line to pay for something, you it really makes you angry because you feel... We're waiting. We've 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 done what we had to do to get yeah, to the front exactly. of the line, and then you've seen somebody who's coming in. But that's what raw talent is about. I mean, from what you're telling us about your story, you're you're not. That was not your intention. No, 
you know, like you said, you were bored and you were cooking and you're cooking. And then that's how people, certain people create certain things that change the course of the way things have been done traditionally. Yeah. So and I was very blessed. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, it's an amazing situation to be in. I, I absolutely commend you for, for doing that and for pushing forward and for going because your list of clients and, and what you've done is, is very, very impressive. So I feel that that you shouldn't need more than that because I think the work should speak for itself. It's not about a degree and it doesn't matter whether, you know, you have one or not. It's what you're doing in those space uh, for your clients that should be the ultimate thing that matters. Just this year, my, I told my husband I'd like to do a certification and he was like, for what? I was like, I want to just sign up for to do a Cordon Bleu, a basic cuisine. And I'm proud to say I was the oldest student. I basically, again, proved that once you set your mind to it, whatever age you are, mm-hmm especially as a female, yeah, that you can take your life back any point in your life and just do it because you can. Because not only have I come out with a basic, I mean, French certification, which obviously has zero bearing on the food I cook. Right. Because it's completely different styles. But yes. the fact that I got a certification, in fact, I was the best student and I think it was the best results in eight years, basically shown that anything's possible if you set your mind to it. And don't let anything hold you back, even if it means taking a three-month sabbatical like me, Mm -hmm. because there will be challenges, different challenges, like worrying about your kids, still having to plan for your kids, because when they went back to school, I was still studying for that one month. Yes. But... As a woman, I think it's very, very important that if there is any doubt Mm -hmm. or any point you want to do something and say, what if I did it? Don't don't leave it as an if, you know. Do it. Do it. Yeah, I think the limitations that we set are more in our mind than what we... And we, we project those limitations as excuses as others. Oh, our kids won't manage. Our husband won't manage. My business can't afford for me to leave for this amount of time. The world goes on oh, yeah. and everyone is happy to support you when they see you doing something to better yourself, to push yourself forward, because there's nothing more encouraging and inspiring than seeing somebody work hard at something to grow themselves. So people rally around you. I think it's just you are afraid about taking that next step forward. And it's very inspiring, as I said, as a story to to see that you can do it at any age. Tick that box, go forward, challenge yourself, you know, do whatever you want to do, whatever your reason may be, to whether you want to prove to other people, whether you want to prove to yourself that I belong here. Exactly. You know, I may not have taken the traditional route, <laughs> but... I belong here. Yeah. I've worked as hard as anyone else, you know, and these clients haven't come to me just because of, of connections, which I don't have. So it's amazing to, to, to hear that story. And, you know, I hope more people are inspired to do those things, which is brings me to my next section segment, I would say, yes. which is new, which is fact or fiction. And I'd like you to break some facts or and tell us whether they are facts about food um, that, that we see. So, Here goes. Labels which say uh, organic only uh, contain at least 95% organic ingredients or are made with. 
95% organic ingredients. Yeah, I love the controversial ones oh, that make yeah. you think and say, ooh, should I say this? Should yeah. I not? So go ahead and say it is what I'm telling you. So just be very, very careful what you buy because what you see is not normally what you get. That's all I'm going to say. That's all you're going to say. Oh yes. my God, you've left us to decide for ourselves. So yeah. I am telling you that my research shows that labels that only have the organic stamp are not 100% organic. There is a small percentage of non-organic ingredients in them now. Sometimes the percentage varies. Absolutely. That's what you're yeah. saying. Well, my yes. research shows that it's 95 and there's 5% that is not organic, but you're saying it could be more. Oh, yeah. Okay. So we're going to let you decide that when you buy the next yes. uh, organic product. And this applies especially when you are buying um, food online. Ooh. Especially at delivery. That's a whole new show. I'm going to have to call you back for that one. Oh, but dear. I'm going to move on to my next one, which yes. is... Labels which say made with organic ingredients have only 70% of organic ingredients in it. So we've got 100% organic and we've got organic and now we've got made with organic ingredients. Yeah. So these could be your bars and these could be your prepackaged foods, which may have that 70%. 70%. Um, that's, well, that's the requirement, but then... At the factory, technically, you don't know what they put in because they can, that's what they declare. Right. That's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Okay. All right. So organic, next question is organic food have more nutrients in them? That's what people uh, choose to believe because at the end of the day, they're paying three times more. <laughs> So are they more nutritious in terms of like the vitamins in it, you know, the minerals in it? Assuming, okay, let me draw you a scenario and then again, you decide for yourselves. Um, if you have a same plot of land, mm -hmm. there's only one sun in the world. Yeah. Taking the same amount of sunlight. Mm -hmm. um, but the only difference is the amount of pesticides used. Yes. Um, then obviously the non-organic option Mm -hmm. um, is, you know, dealing with the amount of the, the presence of pesticides. Yes. But the minerals and what's in the same carrot mm -hmm. on the same plot of land is mm -hmm. pretty much the same. It is the same. So they are not more nutritious as such. It's just the addition of chemicals yes. to the top of it to, to produce them is what we're saying. Now, this is for plants. What about uh, meat? Because of the hormones that are injected into the meat. And that's now obviously that, what we are consuming. Yes, exactly. And that is why a lot of people choose to go the more organic route. For meat specifically. For meat and chicken. And even, I mean, I don't like ingesting in, in, in pesticides. Yeah. But for example, if I know I grew something in my own garden, mm. I don't need to label it as organic because it's as organic as you can get because I don't put pesticides on my own Fruits and vegetables, for example. But pesticides and chemicals on top of uh, a fruit or a vegetable can be washed off. There are ways to clean there it. It's not, ways. is it going inside the food? Like like the hormones are going inside the meat? The it, hormones are injected into the animals. Exactly. So, I would, so with the meat, we need to be more yes. organic. Whereas, again, 
you see, I'm I'm not the foremost authority because I'm not um, a scientist, so I don't know exactly um, the the specific farming processes. What I can tell you is by rule of thumb, mm-hmm. if you can. So for for me, for example, my herbs and spices that I use, mm-hmm. I pretty much grow in my own garden. Yes. So I don't need to check on stuff. I know where it's coming from. Of it's course, coming from of my course. Garden. So, for example, tomorrow I'm hosting um, a dinner for uh, New Zealand ambassadors' farewell. Mm-hmm. So tonight or tomorrow morning, for the flowers, instead of going to buy organic um, flowers, edible flowers for right. their creations, yes, I'm pretty much plucking the flowers from your from, own garden, from my own garden. Yes, um, same as curry leaves. Mm-hmm. So. These are easy things to grow, even if you have a small space. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So if you can, why don't you just grow it yourself? Save the money. Yeah. Even in an apartment, just put the pot by your window. window. Yes. And that's what I tell all my clients. Yes. So the questions of whether to buy this or not, don't ask. Just plant yourself. So what you can. Yeah, what yes. you can. Yes. And then the meats, if you can go organic, go organic. But if you can't, if you think that it's three or four times the price, mm-hmm. then get the free range ones. Yeah. Free range or grass fed beef. Mm-hmm. You know, things that you know are, has a, a less chance of being, well, I would say. Uh, Completely tainted and yeah. and yeah, absolutely. Almost poisoned to some level. A lot of times, again, as long as you don't see it, people can say what they want. Yes. So, you know, you can only take precautions. Yes. And that's the most practical. Because you can argue, no pun intended, till the cows come home. <laughs> but as long as you don't see it, you don't know. Everything is hearsay. And that's what these companies rely on. Yeah. Like, how can we prove this? You can't. Exactly. But we have to just make sensible decisions, yes. you know, go to your local farmers you if they're if you have access to them, yes. grow certain herbs in your house and make your own bread. Yeah. I'm going to try that for sure. There you go. The next one is organic produce tastes better. We we have the farmers market. I live in Business Bay and Bay Avenue. They have the farmers market every weekend now when it's winter. Yeah. And uh, we buy the eggs and you can see the difference because the, difference. the size of those exactly. eggs are like tiny and yeah. they're irregular as compared to the ones that exactly. you get, so even you know, with carrots, a pre-packaged. Carrots, radishes, all this are irregular. And I don't know, maybe it's um, psychological. I think they taste sweeter. They do taste better. Fruits and vegetables do not grow so proportional and exactly the same size and the same color and they're shining always on the outside. And, you know, that should be the first sign that tells you that this is not organic. So I am going to ask you uh, to tell us about what has been the most rewarding aspect of your business so far. I think the friends I've made, the relationships, for me it's the relationships. Well, that's... friendship. Yeah, and, and as a business owner, what's better than just having, you know, meeting interesting people and, and keeping in touch? Yeah. That's what keeps us going and, yeah. you know, keeps the passion alive. If you could get the general population to change one aspect of their eating habit, what would it be? Sugar. Because it's infiltrated pretty much every single food mm-hmm. you see on the shelves. And it, it makes me shake my head when, you know, cereals, for example... Yes. Cereals for kids. 
Yes. It's supposed to be healthy and that's how it was marketed. Yeah, it's like sweet sandpaper, I think, for kids. <laughs> that's what I look at it. And then you add, you, you add the milk and you make it worse because you don't know where that's coming from. I mean, it doesn't make sense as a, as a food group. Sugar, it's, I think it's everywhere. So from your drinks yes. to your cereals to even your cereal bars, which are supposed to be healthy, healthy. Yes. Um, to, I know, certain foods that you cook, everything, there's sugar everywhere. In processed foods, there's so much hidden sugar. It's hidden sugar that you know, um, it's Like scary. you're saying in your cans and, and you yeah. know, the things that you buy out of convenience because you don't have time and you just want like a um, pre-prepared curry that you can then feel oh but i'm putting fresh vegetables and i just want this sauce so i'll tell you a challenge i have okay especially in my industry i Mm -hmm. mean not industry sorry in my work my life work because i'm supposed to do traditional foods following traditional recipes right and this is where it becomes challenging because i've got three aspects of my business Mm -hmm. consulting Mm -hmm. catering private chef right and because of my clientele Mm -hmm. um I have the politicians who want me to do my traditional foods versus, for example, the footballers who wants me to do healthy food. Mm-hmm. So with the healthy food side, it's easy because I just skip sugar and then I, I do yeah. substitutes with raw honey or dates. Mm-hmm. Whereas with traditional foods, using traditional recipes, I have to use sugar. Right. Because the consistency, my mom would kill me if I substitute anything else. Right. And... You know, every time I put in, it just kills me. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm killing someone with this. I'm killing someone with this for every spoonful I put in. So sometimes I substitute. And Mm -hmm. so that's my challenge because um, even if, because I do consultancy for business setups as well, Mm -hmm. and I may not agree with their business. For example, uh, um, if a client says, I want to open a candy shop. Right. I can't say no, no. So I have to, you know, segregate my life very clearly, even though I always tell the business owners, I don't agree with what you're doing, Right. but let's do this. Yes. And I'll give you the business aspect of it, even right. though I may not agree what you're selling. Absolutely. There you go. <laughs> oh, well. To end this, let's talk about what's been your biggest food disaster or failure. Something you've cooked that was a complete mess and that you still had to serve it. There's only one. Because usually I'm very obsessive. Mm-hmm. Um, this was at a food show in Paris. Um, because I had to work with two chefs that were German mm-hmm. men. And obviously when they first saw me, they were like, okay, why are we working for her? She's not a real chef, is she? Wow. And um, it was basically, I was representing Singapore. Mm-hmm. So already you see some problems there because my sous chefs don't even know my cuisine. Right. So um, I gave them a specific uh, a guidelines. I wrote them my recipe. I said, this is for a national dish. It's called the prawn noodle soup. Mm-hmm. And we were supposed to do a show with that dish. And that was particularly a stressful day because I remembered that the next day there will be... Um, the owners, you know, the top CEOs and, and diplomats visiting mm-hmm. because I have to talk about their food that day. Mm-hmm. And I said, make sure you follow the recipes down to boot. So I was assured that they would do that. Right. 
So when I arrive, my job profile is not to produce the stock because they were already supposed to do that based on my specific um, instructions. So I arrived just in time for the show to prep my show table. Mm -hmm. And then I went to taste the broth. And I went, holy cow, that doesn't taste anything Asian. It doesn't taste anything. I couldn't even recognize that. I was like, what's that? And then they said, oh, uh, we modified it to... Um, <gasps> no. Yeah. So they had modified it and it was literally 15 minutes. Uh, by the time I freaked out, I was like, oh my God, that's because stocks take hours to yes, prepare. Yes, to infuse the flavors. There was no way um, we could have uh, redone it because there was no fresh prawn heads there. And um, we had to go on with the show because the show was starting. And there I was just stressing out because I knew it was going to be a disaster. Right. Because all those tasting the food that they were basically the dignitaries from Singapore. So who know what who it should knows, taste yes, like. exactly. So I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? So that show went horribly, horribly um, downhill. Uh because not the show, the show was perfect. But then when the tasting went out, I had to go out and apologize um, profusely. Yes. And explain what had happened. And I had, I remembered uh, we had about 12 more shows after that. Wow. Um, for the next whole week. And that day itself, I had, I, I, I think that was an example of the, the, the pressures I get because, for example, yes. I'm guessing they think they're a trained chef. They know what a stock should have. It doesn't, whatever I've given them doesn't go close to what they've learned, even though they've forgotten that they're trained in European cuisine mm-hmm. and not so much Asian cuisine. We have different flavors, different cooking styles, different cooking methods. They cannot apply the same, uh, you know, what they've learned in school to what I'm doing. Um, well, but this also comes down to professionalism to say that if you are there as a sous chef and you have a head chef, whether you agree with their nationality, whether you yeah. agree with their training, whether you agree with, you know, uh, the fact that it's a woman, you are still supposed to take instructions. Uh, I would yeah. say that that is the professional thing to do. You can take all your problems and sort it out later and say, I'm not going to work for you because I don't agree with what you're saying or I don't, I don't like the way that you cook. But when you're there and you have to get the job done, you have to put these feelings aside and just get the job done, whether you believe in it or you don't believe it. In. And if you don't believe in it, then you shouldn't be there. Yeah, and that was pretty much the biggest disaster and that was the only one really it's amazing to meet people like that to say that you know in spite of everything we faced uh we've gone on and we've continued on our journey and it hasn't deterred us to to stop and say i need to move something or i need to shift something or i need to change something in me and that is always 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 inspiring to see that these are the real stories and i feel like a lot of times people sugarcoat their successes and say, oh, it's been great and I haven't had any problems. And, you know, we're all struggling. We've all had problems. We are all working through our messes (laughs) to get through our obstacles. And, you know, to still be here and to still have that passion is is absolutely amazing. So thank you very much for sharing your time and your story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. There is no formula for success. 
So stay authentic and keep believing in yourself. This is Kanchan Kulkarni saying goodbye for now and speak to you again soon.